Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and it's really a um, delight to see all of you here on this gorgeous spring day. Um, this is a special program for me because um, I realized one of my lifetime goals um, two years ago, exactly two years ago, when I got to spend 10 days in Cuba, and I even got to spend my birthday there uh, in Baracoa on the eastern tip of Cuba. Very famous place. And uh, they baked me a birthday cake, which was not the best birthday cake I've ever had. But uh, Criticism, criticism. The, <laughs> the sentiment was great. Um, in December, the U.S. and Cuba announced that they would begin the process of um, reestablishing diplomatic relations. And last month, as you know, at the Summit of the Americas in Panama, President Obama shook hands with Cuban President Raul Castro. We're really pleased to welcome Tom Hayden here this afternoon to discuss with us these developments in the U.S., the complicated relationship between U.S. and Cuba. Tom Hayden is a longtime observer of Cuba, and his new book, Listen, Yankee, Why Cuba Matters, is both an account of Cuban <coughs> politics as well as a personal memoir. Uh, as most of you know, Tom Hayden was a leader in the student anti-war and civil rights movements of the 1960s. That's where we all became familiar with him. He was an environmental activist leading campaigns to shut down nuclear power plants and serving as California's first solar energy official. Uh, he served for 18 years in the California legislature, and now he is the director of the Peace and Justice Resource Center in California. We are also very delighted to welcome our friend Mark Steiner here this afternoon. Mark just came back from Cuba. I did. And so they're going to have a delightful conversation. We'll have a Q&A following, and the Ivy Bookshop is here, and books are for sale, we'll, and Tom will be signing those after the program. So, so I, here we go. Good to have you all here on this beautiful day. And uh, <laughs> just a little as note that Tom is going to begin by just talking about his book and the work he's been doing. And, you know, Tom was a state senator in California for a long time and was a term limited out, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Uh, was a, one of the founders of Students for Democratic Society, right off of the, the Huron, Port Huron Statement, uh, was in Newark when the rebellion broke out, and uh, then in the 60s, and has been an activist his entire life. And this, I can say a great deal more, but I think I'd rather just let Tom begin his conversation, and we can begin our conversation and our conversation with both of you. Tom, all of you, excuse me. Thanks so much, uh, Mark. Um, and... <clears throat> Uh, I want to um, thank the library and thank um, um, Ed Berlin from the uh, Ivy Bookstore. Uh, it's uh, an honor to be here. I'm sorry that um, um, I'm a little uncertain about the ground we should cover today. Before you came in, I was talking about Newark and comparing it to Baltimore indirectly. Mm because I know that's very much on your mind, and I don't want to be a relief to you to go off and think about Cuba and then come back to reality. Um, but um, uh, I, I, 
I do appreciate your attention to Cuba, and I want to get straight to the point, and then we can have dialogue Absolutely. and questions. I met this morning with John Angelos of the uh, Orioles. Um, he's a friend, and he was his family was the organizer of a baseball tournament, as you know, here um, in Baltimore with the Cuban national team against uh, an American team. The Cubans won, of course. Uh, <laughs> And they now have the best baseball players in the major leagues in each category that sports writers pay attention to. And it's been a, an interest of mine for a long time to use baseball as an integrator in the Cuban-American relationship as it unfolds. And Baltimore is at ground zero of that opportunity because of the leadership of John Angelos. He introduced me this morning, he talked about it. He, he had some questions from sports writers, very, very intelligent questions. Um, and if we, if we look at it just momentarily, you can see what lies ahead, what is so-called normalization about. We don't really know, it's a new deal, but we know what abnormalization has been. It means Yasiel Puig, uh, uh, probably the best of the best, but all of them are the best, are better than any major league players, uh, had to get here like a so-called uh, illegal alien using um, the speedboats of drug runners and mafia families, paying off people, having to change his nationality, uh, falsify documents in Mexico in order to live there long enough to be moved to the United States, to Florida, before finally arriving at age 22 or something uh, with a million-dollar contract in the United States. It, what baseball players from Cuba go through to come here is awful. It's a window into the whole immigrant rights issue, and it's disgusting they're, they're, we want them. We're the consumers. It's like drug traffic. We want to see them play. Uh, and and um, it doesn't seem to bother us because we're ignorant of, of the facts of how they got here. We seem to think they're running away from communism. No. They want to play baseball with the best. They want to show that they're the best in the world. That's what baseball players are. They're required to give up being Cuban and to not go back and to be severed from their families in order to play. That cannot go on. That is not normal relations. Normal relations will require that the Baltimore Orioles or whatever the team is take the lead, send people to Cuba, scout Cuban players, invest in Cuban baseball, offer contracts to Cubans and their families, that the, the, the contracts be honored, be enforceable, be safe, uh, be protective, uh, and that the um, Cuban government get a, a revenue share from whatever taxes are levied by the Cuban government on these baseball players coming to play in North America. Uh, and when they get here, they should play as Cubans if they wish. They don't have to play as former Cubans because they will want, I know, to play for Cuba in international competition in the winter. They will want to travel back and forth. 
Uh, there's a long diaspora. There's a long history here. Do you know that Tommy Lasorda was a pitcher in the Cuban leagues? He was a, a, a poor lefty, but he went on to greatness in, in other areas. Um, so I don't know what the solution would be, but Cuba is not going to have its athletes treated like chattel, right? Major League Baseball is not going to be entitled to rip off Cuban players. That's understood. But what role will the Cuban government play? What role will Cuban baseball play? Um, how will the major leagues uh, negotiate contracts? I think it will be for the better, and they could set a standard uh, that maybe uh, would apply to you know, other relationships in our economy. For example, a lot of people ask me, um, is Cuba going to be ruined by Starbucks? <clears throat> this is usually before they get their latte and think about it over the morning papers. And I, I, I say, I believe, with all that Cuba has been through, they can put up with Starbucks. And what I'm hoping is that Starbucks uh, will be unionized in Cuba, that the Communist Party or labor organizations will demand good wages for Starbucks workers in Havana, <laughs> Uh, at the tourist uh, resorts where Americans will be visiting, and that uh, Café Cubano will be sold uh, in North American outlets of Starbucks in the internationalization of our abnormal economy. How it works out, you can play a role. Go to Cuba tomorrow. Buy this book. Read it on your way. Meet Ricardo Alarcón. Buy a coffee. Come back. Get your neighbors to go. It's, it's, a, it's a, a new realm of freedom in terms of the, the high seas. Um, I shouldn't quite say that. There's still a ban on going as a tourist. So you need to make up an identity for yourself like a religious worker or a journalist or an archaeologist. Find a way. Obama's expanded the categories of travel to about 25, hasn't right, he? Right. And, and, and let, let's play out the next chapter of history for the better. Thanks, Mark, and I, I appreciate all you've done in terms of reporting on Cuba. My pleasure. I know, and I, I, I just want to say that, you know, what you were just saying about the Orioles, I mean, John Angelos and the Orioles, I mean, they made, when you talk about what's happening in Baltimore right now, just to throw that out there, the Orioles have made some incredible statements about um, what has happened here in Baltimore. I saw that. Incredible statements uh, the, from, the, from the GM to on up. And so I just think that says a lot about our city and about their commitment to our city and to and understanding this world. So I just want to throw that out there as well. Um, Cuba. Where do we begin? Well, first of all, I'm going to say, I was telling you saying at lunch to you that one of the things this book did to me is it, it just opened up these kind of flood of memory banks, my memory banks about Cuba. Because... I think most Americans don't really, unless they're of a certain age, and even if they are of a certain age, don't really understand the, the depth of what happened in the 60s after uh, Fidel and um, the others overthrew Batista and what began to transpire then. And that's what you kind of share in the beginning of this book. And I think it's important to go backwards to figure all that out. Well, yeah, I first went to Cuba in 1968. I'm... I'm not a person that, that was on the uh, Venceremos brigades. By the way, there were far more people on the Venceremos brigades 
which are unknown virtually in history, than the 1,000 young white people that went to Mississippi in 1964, which had become the subject of many movies and many books. So there is this embargo that works in a way to shut us off from memory of anything that happened these 55 years. Uh, but the tens of thousands of U.S. citizens who've gone to Cuba, who violated the law, who were penalized, were jailed, were fined, uh, and did it anyway, uh, whether as uh, visitors, writers, artists, entertainers, cane cutters, are a valuable constituency in the United States uh, that I think was helpful in pushing for this uh, agreement. Uh, why did we do that? I, that's a really good question. All I know is that <clears throat> there was an inspirational moment, uh, kind of like the birth of life itself is inspirational uh, and, and bloody, but new things happen, and it creates an energy that attracts a lot of other people. So in the late 50s, the early 60s, Cuba became a symbol of leadership in the, what was then called the third world, later the non-aligned world. Uh, Cuba became very important to African Americans when they met Fidel Castro and General Almeida in uh, Harlem. He filled stadiums at Harvard University on the same trip. Um, he, he was a conquering hero in North America for a temporary moment, although the CIA was divided as to his true nature and whether he should be eliminated sooner or given a period <laughs> of, of uh, responsibility to see what happened. Nixon um, shook his hand in a photo op but later said, this person is not going to, this is not going to work out. <laughs> uh, then came the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion, um, uh, which failed. Uh, Kennedy was then vilified by the generals for not bombing Cuba or invading with American ground troops. Thank God he did not do that. Um, the Cuban exiles became a... Uh, conservative cancer on our democracy by locating in sanctuaries in Florida, and they went forth to do all kinds of awful things, attacking Cuba, uh, blowing up the car and killing the Chilean ambassador in Washington and his assistant, Ronnie Moffat, uh, uh, invading the uh, hotel in Washington on behalf of the Republican Party to start the Watergate break-in. Uh, that, that was all Cuban exiles festering with resentment at Kennedy's so-called betrayal, uh, as if Kennedy lost Cuba by not, you know, obliterating them with a bombing attack or sending in Amer American troops. Then came the, the Bay of Pigs, I mean the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was 22, and uh, I've never had the experience, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone, of being told that there's about to be a nuclear uh, exchange, yeah. and we will be evaporated. And considering the options for how we die, evaporation is not uh, the, the worst, because apparently you immediately disappear. You don't have time to assemble your thoughts. I went numb. Uh, millions of people around the world were probably affected by that. 
Uh, and it left a scar of paranoia and fear. Uh, when you read it, it's just amazing how these people on both sides actually contemplated an actual experience of a nuclear strike. So Cuba never stopped being important. You know, the way it was important would change, but it had a formative effect on the early civil rights movement and the early student movement and anti-war movement. I, I, one of the beauties of this book is it's a conversation you have with, with Ricardo Alarcón, um, who is the former foreign minister, ambassador to the UN, and head of the, of the, uh, the parliament in Cuba, was. Um, the, I tell you, I, I've always... One of the things about this... this is, let's start here. That most Americans don't know, ever heard, this, or ever heard his name. Correct. Don't know who he is. We'll talk about that in a moment. And I knew who he was, but what blew my mind in this book was finding out who he was and how he thought and what he was involved in, from his time in the revolution to his interaction around the theories around Che and what, how to make revolution to his ideas about what real democracy means. I mean, it's really, this is a very powerful kind of thing. I've just, just I always thought of him as like, you know, a Cuban bureaucrat. Exactly. Right, you know? <laughs> but he's anything but. Well, he is a Cuban bureaucrat. He is that, but you I know, mean, he's he's probably, the mentality I'm talking he's about. He's probably the most connected diplomat in the world because he's lived long enough and he's been in, involved in the wars in Angola. He's been involved with the Soviet Union. He's seen it come and go. He, he's been in everything. And yet, as you say, nobody here knows him. That's why my publisher told me it had to be my book because... People here know me with a name, and they don't know him. And how weird it is that here's a person who's led his country next door to us, and no one knows him, and he's, you can't interview him uh, for many years unless you go to small areas where he's allowed to be, like the United, the United Nations. So I knew him um, peripherally uh, starting in 68, uh, and I didn't, I didn't know him well, and in... 2006, something like that, he invited me to come down. And I, 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 he's a busy man. He was employed in those jobs. And I said, why? And, I, and they, uh, on cer certain invitations, you just don't, just, oh, I'm going to go. And uh, his daughter is a, a, a Cuban hybrid. She's raised in New York because of his, his time in the UN. And she's a great translator, like binational, bilingual, Cuban. Um, I said, why am I doing this? And she said, it's just two old guys talking. <laughs> so that became the chapter. And it struck me that I thought, well, that's a, that's a cover story. What's really going on here? Because I'm a suspicious person. But the more I thought about it, you know, when you get to be old, you have the honor of, of looking back on what it felt like to be young and to see uh, what how life has traveled, whether it's the life of a state, a revolution, person, compared to what you thought in the beginning. Um, and he and I were both philosophy students at our respective universities, Havana and University of Michigan. So we talked for a week. And uh, he said it was for the Cuban archives. They wanted to follow the history of all these movements in the world. Uh, but He's a top official, so what was so important about our movement? And by the way, his assistant at the time 
turned out to apparently be a spy who's now in prison. So nothing I told him in these taped interviews was uh, uh, unknown to the United States or whatever uh, global officials were spying them. Uh, and I don't really remember, and I don't have a record of my conversations. But uh, it, it seemed to me uh, a little aimless, and then I got the sense that he was his mission then, uh, as Fidel was sick, his mission was to um, figure out the way forward for the Cuban government, which had adopted a, um, a one-party system uh, dominated by one individual in response to what they considered to be the threat to their existence, but they knew that there had to be a transition to democracy or some pluralism somehow, somewhere. And he was charged with preparing how to do this. And they couldn't possibly, as you can understand, buy into the American version of democracy because that had brought them uh, attacks, invasions, bombings, killings, assassinations, uh, economic strangulation. Uh, so the, the, the idea of what a two-party system actually meant was a little distasteful to the Cuban population because they judged things based on experience, and that experience with our democracy was a kind of a no-go. Um, advice to Obama, don't try to sell democracy to countries that have had a bitter experience with it. It's just an impossible sale. That's probably why we do it in secret, right? We, we smuggle in devices uh, so that democracy will pop up from underground uh, uh, sanctuaries. So he, he was interested in SDS and why our movements failed. He was interested in participatory democracy as an alternative to parliamentary democracy. Uh, the idea of participatory democracy, which we've never been able to implement on a state level, but is implemented all the time in little ways, simply means... In a family, it should be democratic. Father doesn't always know best. In a neighborhood, it should be democratic. The developers don't really know what's best for your neighborhood, um, uh, and so on. Uh, uh, even in the Vatican, the movement of liberation theology tried to reclaim some identity and some role for the parishioners, for the women, for people who are in the church but cannot have a, 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 a role. And so that was very electrifying and exciting to us until we tried to implement it <laughs> sometimes. But, but it holds out an appeal in Latin America. Participatory democracy is an actual translatable word in Latin America because they've had it with institutional parties and they're looking for new forms. So that might have been uh, the reason. That's when the dialogue began. And then it resumed when I had this intuition in 2013 that it was going to come to a head and there was going to be a mutual recognition. And so I went back then to really interview him. You had this great... I, 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 I did a typical Mark Steiner. and I, I, um, My printer wouldn't work at home. And, of course, my computer now has run out of battery and the, the plug is too far away. So I'll try to remember all this in my head. I think I have it, though. Um, I can help. I think, can you really? You, you did write the book. <laughs> um, but you had this great quote from Fidel in this book um, where he, that he did in 1950, he said in 1959, 
where he criti- criticized Western capitalism, but he also criticized the authorita- authoritarian nature of communist states. Give you an inkling into the mind, also maybe Valcaron's mind as well, and, and about where it might be going now because of all that. You know, because you go to Cuba, the first thing you want about is this, the power, and Alcaron talks about this in your book, but the power of international capital, what it can do uh, to the world anywhere it goes, and can Cuba resist that and survive in the new way that he is describing that could be a new Cuba? Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Um I want to pause for a second and ask this gentleman to volunteer to take the names of people here for my email. I can send you more thoughts on this if you give me your email. That would be very kind. Um, I don't go to the FBI. Uh, <laughs> depends on the, who's in the room. The, um, I, I don't want to go too deeply into the original thinking of Fidel uh, because people make up their own versions yeah. of history, but... Yeah. It's at least arguable that the Communist Party in Cuba under Batista had settled into an arrangement with Batista that protected the, the jobs of workers in communist-led unions. Um, and they didn't want to unsettle that relationship for an unknown revolutionary upheaval in which they might all be killed or repressed. Uh, so the Cuban communists were sidelined uh, in the process of the revolution, which was led by an ad hoc group called the 26th of July movement, which had its own internal factions. And one of the things that Alarcón points out that I think is very important is all along the way there was sectarian and ideological and egotistical strife that even led to the killing of each other of supposed comrades in these struggles. It was not all the CIA, but movements have their own very, very serious internal problems. You may have noticed in trying to keep any group alive longer than seven years. Uh, so uh, at, at some point, uh, th- there was this idea that Cuba and the Third World could be an alternative to the Cold War power bloc. And that was the SDS idea in the Port Huron Statement. That's what got us in trouble because we didn't like either side possessing the nuclear weapons. We thought they took money from domestic programs, they threatened the peace, and they did nothing for the hungry people of the third world. Uh, In Fidel's speech, which I did not even know about until I went back and researched this book, He said we seek a humanist alternative. We call it humanism. That the problem with socialism was that it fed people but took away their liberty, and the problem with capitalism is that in the name of liberty it took away food. Something like that was Mm -hmm. his statement. But what he was really saying as a young intellectual and law student representing his section of people was that we're really struggling for a new way, some alternative you know, to the two power blocks of the so-called free world, which included Batista, and the communist bloc, which uh, had advanced materially, but not in terms of liberty. That became uh, uh, um, forgotten uh, as the two power blocks asserted themselves, and it's sort of like realizing that you, you, don't, even ha- you don't have free will uh, as a revolutionary, you, d- you don't. You, you have to 
proceed uh, making partners with people that will protect what you have. And so given the menace of the United States after the Bay of Pigs, it was pretty easy for them to adopt a, a relationship with the Soviet Union with all that that would bring with it on the negative side. It would bring national security protection and material improvement in terms of trade and so on. And Alarcón was, uh, later was a member of the Politburo of the Communist Party, but in the book he talks about it as if he wasn't, right. because he's remembering these intense debates, you know, at the beginning when it's been established that Communist Party members informed on one of his closest friends and comrades and, and guaranteed the shooting and killing of uh, seven of these young people by the Batista police. And that's not forgotten. If later you come to appreciate what the Soviet Union has done for you, at, when you're young, you don't forget these tensions. And so he never thought that the Soviet Union was a model. Uh, on the other hand, um, they needed the Soviet Union for a long time, and when it collapsed, it was probably the worst thing in his life. You can't imagine the lights going out and the food disappearing overnight, and you're feeling defenseless because there's no longer a Soviet Union to defend against the United States. And they had to go through a period of, of, of starvation, deprivation, um, for, for uh, many years, uh, uh, which sent them back on the path of looking for an alternative. And they sort of found it in the new um, Latin American movements led by um, the Central American bloc, uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, then Brazil in the south, and above all, Venezuela, Argentina. One by one, the dictators were overturned and democratic processes elected new governments uh, across Latin America, and that seemed to be the start towards a model um, of participatory democracy. In each of those countries, it was debated. The more radical, small-D Democrats or anarchists didn't like electoral politics, but they couldn't really turn away from the idea at the base that we should elect Lula, we should elect Kirshner. We should elect Chavez. Uh, we can't say no to that. Let's see where it goes. And so Cuba learned from that more about democratic options than they could ever learn from the CIA. Uh, and it, it has to do with how movements can empower people and what you do about actually electing a government with all the bureaucracy that that includes and how you keep the democracy accountable, something that is an unfinished subject of discussion in Cuba. But they will make some kind of transition, and we have had something to do with it. I'll give you one example. Oh, please do. If it's a one-party state run by one guy for 50 years, think about it. How does anything change? The, the daughter of the one guy, Raul, one of the two guys, is Mariela, is a... Worldwide advocate for LGBT rights. Right. Now, in 1965, Allen Ginsberg was thrown out of Cuba for being gay. What happened? Did the party central committee reconsider the ideology of homosexuality? No. No. The, it's, again, this free-floating interchange of ideas 
They met all these Americans who were gay coming to Cuba, friends of Cuba, who were arguing with them. Why are you doing this to the gay people? What, do you, what is this about? Or what are you doing to the black people? And there's an osmosis that does occur that's not imperialist. It's not us telling them what to do. It's mutuality of people associating and learning from each other. And gradually, despite the one-party system and the one-man rule, quote-unquote, they have as good or better a policy on LGBT rights now than the United States of America does. So it happens through this process, which I think we underestimate. They're listening to your program. They're reading books. They're meeting with Americans. Things do change at that dinner table or coffee yeah. shop level. And I, th- I think one of the things that struck me in Cuba this last journey I made, which just came back was it three weeks ago, whatever that was, um, everybody I talked to in the streets and everybody I, wherever I went to, December 17th was in their head like a magic date. Right. The day that, of Lazarus. Right. Right. That's the day that Raul and, Lazaro. And, and Obama spoke. But everybody knows where they were. Did you call your mother that day? And, 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 and did, you, did, you tell, did you watch television, watch TV? But one of the things that came out of that was is the intensity of the relationship between, between um, Cuba and the United States. It's been this way for 150 years, by this intense relationship between the two countries. And I'm curious, having written this book with uh, this incredible human being who I... I'm just I'm just so happy I have a different sense of Ricardo Alcaran now than I did before, but but where do you think this takes us? I mean, why why read this book? Where does this take America? What does America have to get from this book? That's maybe beyond just understanding what Cuba has been and 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 what Alcaran thinks. Uh, well, I, I think it's it's part of the um, lifting of the embargo from ourselves since. We, we, doesn't it make you uncomfortable to realize that you're a know-nothing? That everybody in the world knows something about Cuba and we don't, and that's the direct result of our policy? That's, a, that's step one, um, especially if you consider yourself a regional power. <laughs> uh, but I think there's another uh, aspect of this um, that you know people will have different opinions, but the, the point that I've tried to make in the book is that <clears throat> we have a, a, a lasting need to restore our relationships across the Americas, and Cuba has been a devastating disruption of that relationship. We come from many backgrounds, including um, slavery and colonial conquest of the indigenous people on these continents. Hundreds of millions of mestizos uh, have arisen as a result of this fatal interaction or terrible interaction 500 years ago and ongoing. But at some point, um, the Americas evolved and they asserted a a new identity and they had Republican small-R revolutions uh, in, in, in centuries past slave uprisings. Cuba went through this process, uprising, defeat, and so on. Uh, But in in the mixing and mingling, um, uh, we became a a motley crew that used to describe the Americans who started the revolution with the Boston Massacre. Adams, who was the British lawyer, said they were a motley crew. 
And he meant they were black mulatto tags. That's Irish Catholics, for those of you who are ignorant. (laughs) 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 And uh, this fear of the motley crew uh, was in the Federalist Papers. They said, we we can't have a majority (laughs) faction. Because everybody in America was, was black or female or renters. How many? The, the 1% was truly the only group that was enfranchised to vote. And the expansion of democracy was a fight or a war every step of the way. Uh, so there is this fear, but it seems to me we, if we look around uh, at who works at our campuses, who works in our restaurants, who... Who works, uh, you know, on our underground rail systems? It's immigrants from Latin America, and now there'll be a lot of immigrants coming from Cuba. They'll be in line, back and forth. And what Marti said, and that's why Cubans on both sides of the divide love Marti, uh, Jose Marti. Everybody should read Marti. But he said these are our Americas. He conceived of the hemisphere as one interacting organism, one place, with this motley composition. Uh, And uh, I think he was right. He planned his Cuban revolution from Florida. He wrote for New York newspapers. He he, uh, was killed on the first day that he arrived in Florida to start the armed struggle. So his, his existence was at, as a resident of the United States, a Cuban revolutionary plotting in Florida. And, and so he, he knew what he... He said, I lived here. I know the entrails of the monster. I live within the entrails of the monster. He's talking about the Yankee Empire. But there was something about his understanding was that this was all going to be one... Um, one process across the Americas that would include you know, many cultural, political, and even military battlefronts. And he died believing that. Uh, and that's what I think uh, makes Cuba so uh, important. When, when it started, Cuba was isolated by uh, United States dictate. Latin America was in the hands of dictators. They refused to have Cuba be part of the OAS. Now, on the day of Lazarus, um, it's reversed. The United States is isolated from Latin America. Latin America is embracing Cuba. Latin America is saying, we have issues with you. Uh, We would like to have a better relationship with you, but it starts with the test of whether you recognize Cuba. If you can't recognize Cuba, why would we have any confidence in doing any business with Obama or the State Department? And that solid front of Latin America was a big factor for our president, because he could say to his hawks, his security people, look, we need allies. we, We have got to put this behind us because then we can start on a new basis with whatever they they plan to do with Latin America. I don't even have an idea if they have an idea, but it it, it can't be worse. It can only be better. And so uh, uh, 
Cuba is the pivot to a better relationship between the United States and the Americas. That's, that's what I'm arguing. Yeah, I think people don't realize how deeply important Cuba is to everything. I was really, you know, when you read the history of Cuba. By the way, folks, do you, have you have thoughts and ideas and questions? The mic is over there. We're going to ask you to go there rather than jump up from your seat uh, because we're, this is being recorded and um, it's going to be on radio next Friday. So, Oh, who knows what will happen by then. Oh, yeah. my. Anything, well, anything that happened, right, exactly. We don't know what will happen by then. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, sir. All right. This may be a little bit of a stretch, but I'm going to try to ask you to tie together a few things. I was in Harlem when Castro stayed at the Hotel Teresa. Tell us who you are. You My name is Rich Foster. I'm the retired director of the museum in Washington, D.C. My wife is back. Great to also. see you. Thanks for coming. She's a, a, journalist, a journalist who works in education now. Uh, I also happened to be in a place called Chicago in October of 1969 when a Eight guys, uh, which became seven, were on trial for a little ruckus that happened here in '68. You remember that, Tom? We, and, thank uh, you for your support. <laughs> <laughs> and I then worked at a TV station in Miami in the mid '70s, where those that safe haven of very conservative Cuban exiles live. So I've kind of got some perspective on this. I'm wondering, with that kind of background there, what your thoughts are. In, in the wake of what has happened this week, Friday, with the, the uh, state's attorney here prosecuting the police, ostensibly some of that intractability in South Florida is starting to wane in this younger generation of, of Cubans in South Florida. What are the possibilities for moving forward, both in terms of American-Cuban relationships, but also dealing with some of the issues that you and your compatriots were Well, I'd were appreciate, about. I'd appreciate so your, your thoughts. Um, Cubans did not shoot Trayvon Martin. Uh, Florida Cubans can't be accused of that. That was us. Um, but the, an, an interesting um, thought it, it, in response to your question is that you you get into situations that are necessarily polarized for a long time and it becomes eternal in your mind and it hardly ever occurs to you that there could be a resolution, an honorable principled compromise because the people telling you that all along the way usually have nothing to offer. They just want you to be quiet or stop being so restless or violent. Um, what happened with Cuba, I think, is that um, our foreign policy establishment started to realize that it was counterproductive and it was isolating us, and that times had changed. You couldn't really argue that Cuba was an agent of the Soviet Union since there was no Soviet Union. Uh, so what was the point? Uh, th there was no point. Uh, it was more like... Uh, we have a beef with them because they threw us out. Uh, we want to take revenge. Um, but even in, in Florida, the majority of the voters voted for Obama twice, and he warned them, uh, we need to freshen or relook at that policy without tipping them off as to what he planned to do. Um, and among Cubans, the, uh, the octogenarians, people a little older than me who are still... Uh, pained and grieving over the, the loss of Cuba as they see it, 
were less numerous compared to the under 40 people who were born here for whom they wanted to go home to see it. They wanted to meet a relative. They wanted to carry on a conversation. They wanted to resolve the rupture of their bloodline, their, their family line. They, they didn't like Fidel, but they liked the idea of normalizing relations with that island towards some future that is now upon us. Um, so it, I think it took a great effort within the Obama administration and the Cuban uh, government to, to turn the conflict towards a resolution, even though it seems so obvious. Those of us on the outside think it's simple. What is the problem? You recognize each other and move on. We've learned from this how hard it was. Uh, and what an extraordinary act of political and diplomatic leadership it must have required uh, to tell people in both countries, we're not doing this anymore, and you can, you can, you can take out your, your, your uh, attitude towards us in the next election. But I think it's relatively popular in the United States uh, because there's been a change in the Cuban-American and Florida. Uh, the Cold War is over. And it's, I think, more than relatively, I think it's probably quite popular in Cuba because they haven't seen what comes next. They are just excited uh, about getting this. <laughs> no, normal life is a hell of a problem. Just normal. They, but it beats abnormal life. If you lived an abnormal period of life, it's terrible. People have lived in, in, in Cuba abnormally their whole lives, generations, never knowing <clears throat> somebody going to blow us up, what's going to happen next. Uh, and we're starving, but at least we have our sovereignty. It, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So now um, th it's quite popular, and we need to consolidate it here to make sure that it can't be reversed by <coughs> a future president, possibly from the state of Florida. <laughs> no, I think... I, I, if I were that Bush or Rubio, or I wouldn't run on a platform of reversing our policy towards Cuba and going back in. Uh, but they can't seem to stop talking about it. Their kind of bloodthirstiness has not ended, or campaign contributions are still flowing. But I think they'll get over it. Their struggle is to find a new platform. Because Cuba, I don't see Cuba being their platform, do you? It doesn't work. <laughs> People say that people even say it's better to fight communism by going there with our money. <laughs> so you you even lose the anti-communist argument, I think, at a certain point. <laughs> but they'll try. Um, Max Obyshevsky, Baltimore peace activist. Hi. Uh, I was at the Maryland United for Peace and Justice conference yesterday in Catonsville. Phyllis Bendis gave an excellent speech, and she talked about the conference in. Washington, which I hope you can talk a little bit about. Uh, but I ran into a similar cynic there. He said, the United States going into Cuba, it's going to be a disaster. I know. I know. But uh, I wanted to bring a little bit to Baltimore, though. Please. Uh, another cynic, because I saw the email trail, both Mark and I were talking to the cynic, and he said, they'll never, they're never going to charge the police. It's not going to happen. And 
They're never going to what? They're never going to charge, charge the police, six police officers. Oh, oh, yeah. It's uh, and so it, it it obviously happened, and I uh, I urge everyone to read the National Catholic Reporter because there's a piece out right now where the reporter interviewed Brendan Walsh of the Viva House Catholic Worker and Father Lawrence from St. Vincent de Paul, talking about the situation in Baltimore. I just wrote a letter to the Sun last night. In my opinion, regardless of what happens with this case, the only solution in Baltimore is some type of uh, works progress administration where you, where you put these people to work to build the infrastructure. I could list all kinds of problems we have in Baltimore with our infrastructure. Where are you going to get the money from? The only place available is the Pentagon. We have 50% of the discretionary budget going to the Pentagon. That's where the money is. So anything you have to say, and if you want to touch a little bit on the conference in, um, in Washington, which, you know, 50th anniversary, I appreciate hearing that. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Thank you. I don't, I don't want to stray too far, but um, the... Um, I went through that experience in Newark that we're talking about before, and I recorded the deaths of 26 people in 1967, and met with the governor and with uh, Bob Curvin from CORE, and he agreed to withdraw the troops, and uh, nothing happened as we predicted. Nothing would happen because we lived in that community. But governor was surrounded by 25 heavily armed law enforcement people who have another job, um, which is to uh, respond to even the slightest chance that there will be a disruption with uh, sheer force, which leads you to never be able to withdraw from anywhere if anybody is twitching on the ground that might be able to reach for a rock or something. It's a hopeless, um, hopeless philosophy, uh, but I understand it, and um, uh, I don't know that anything will change, but um, I think we, we need a, a new phase of police reform. Each phase is a token adjustment to what's failed in the past. Um, the new thing in police reform professional circles is cameras, body cameras, which I think that's great. It will lead to a lot of litigation, and it ignores the interesting fact that people see things differently. You know, I, I grew up in this world where everybody said, well, you leave it to a jury and they'll eliminate bias from their vision, and when the facts are before them, they'll make a supportable decision, guilty or not. And in my trial in Chicago when I went through uh, conspiracy charges, <laughs> at, we interviewed the jury afterwards. At the beginning of the trial, 1969, that the gentleman referred to, eight jurors thought we were guilty of everything, and four jurors thought we were innocent of everything. At the end of the trial, uh, after 150 witnesses had come before them and the arguments had all been made by, by the lawyers, uh, and... and the same 12 jurors were asked, eight thought we were totally guilty, and four thought we were totally... Nothing had affected their factual judgment. Uh, if, you, if you look at stop and frisk, uh, I'm part of the 38% of white people, apparently, who see it uh, as an intrusive, provocative, dangerous, unnecessary form of policing in the inner city. 
If you go to Latinos or blacks in New York, 90% think my way. They agree. So, so even on de Blasio's election, uh, he only carried a, a minority of white voters on stop and frisk. Uh, they were more supportive of pre-K uh, because I think they think little ones might grow up uh, to be less dangerous if they get pre-K. And he succeeded with the, uh, the uh, Latino and black communities. So we have this built-in uh, <clears throat> bias that I'm not sure anybody knows how to address. Um, I see it in my personal life because my wife and I, my wife of 22 years and I, we have an adopted uh, African-American son who's 15, so he's in that category, uh, a, a menace. <laughs> least menacing person that was ever a menace. He's more like Dennis the Menace. But, and I have an older son who's white who's married to a black woman, uh, so I see it there. And you get into family discussions and you just realize we, we have a, a very different view simply because of our life experience from what most police are going through. So what's the solution to have everybody integrate uh, sexually, what, what is, that you can't wait for that, and it's too slow. What is the solution? Generational change, maybe. I, I'm all for giving good pensions and benefits to as many retiring police officers as I can, because I know them in L.A. I don't know them here, but they will not change, and they can't change because of the orders they're given. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, wait for another generation of new police officers, recruit them differently, uh, train them differently, and change the philosophy of policing with really solid community input, leadership from the churches and all that. But your other point, I think, is even more powerful. We need a, uh, you know, a national uh, Democratic Party platform that's the alternative of the Republican platform on economics. We need what, the equivalent of a New Deal. What did you call it? A WPA. Uh, we, can, we can go back to Nixon, actually, who 50 years ago or so proposed a guaranteed annual income. But uh, you just cannot cope with these problems by reforming policing and overseeing the export of all manufacturing jobs to the third world, leaving incoming immigrants to take service jobs uh, and, and putting everybody else in jail. Uh, that's, that's our program. I, I, I'm very uh, happy that Hillary Clinton has opposed um, mass incarceration. I don't buy into this stuff about, oh, isn't she contradicting her husband? I say I'm fine with that. I'm totally down with that. She should just move along. She's adopting uh, to the Obama constituency that is suspicious of her. That's why she's doing it. People say, well, she doesn't really mean it. That's why she, well, that's what politics is. We are, we are people on a gigantic chessboard, we're, and, and candidates are trying to market their stuff to us, and we're like consumers who are saying, no, we're not having any of that today. Uh, and if you're not organized around that position in Iowa, you don't get anywhere. It doesn't give you any guarantee down the road, 
But if you're not organized, that's why Bernie Sanders is helpful and others are helpful, because they're pushing her on living wage, they're pushing her on incarceration, and uh, I thank God that she's open to being pushed. Uh, and if people accuse her of flip-flopping, well, what do they want? They, they want her to stay in an obsolete position? <laughs> to, no, we should uh, capitalize on this situation. It's absolutely clear this country got to do something to step forward on policing. And second, on, on uh, uh, inner city jobs as an alternative to incarceration. And the candidates will put their fine proposals forward, as any product uh, uh, manager does, and we'll see what they have to say, and we'll buy in or we won't. But I think it's a good debate that's on, and, and uh, I can understand the frustration and hopelessness, uh, but I've been through it so long, I actually welcome the fact that the conversation's beginning and the candidates are, 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 give, are offering us their products at, at this early date. And we need to be clear that they need to know what it will take to placate us. We need to have exact proposals as this process of the campaign goes forward. You can't propose an old idea that didn't work from the war on poverty or from police reform in 1992 in Los Angeles, what's the new idea? It's got to be more than cameras, but cameras are a start. We'll get that off the table and then move on. We have our own cameras. As far as I'm concerned, that's been the only thing that has moved this disturbing process forward is that people, and these people are getting arrested for taking pictures of other citizens being beaten up. Is this a the brand of democracy that I was referring to earlier, is this de democracy because we have so many handheld cameras? No. It's the, it's the difference between us having any democracy and having one that's, that's vibrant. So I, I'd like to hear whatever you think is the next step forward, but I'm following with lots of people what's going on in Baltimore and what's next, and thank you for your comment. Right here. Hi, I'm a high school teacher here in Baltimore City, and I'm taking a group of students in a month and a half to Cuba. Um, All right. Some of uh, the students I'm bringing are activists and organizers within the Black Lives Matter movement here in the city. And so I'm wondering, um, as we go to Cuba, what are some lessons they can glean of what youth activists did post-revolution um, to help the quality of life uh, in Cuba of those citizens? We've talked some about the literacy brigades and the role of youth in that, um, which really did impact uh, the literacy rates in the country or definitely played a role. And I guess what are other um, sites or things I can sort of guide them to, ideas they should consider uh, as they spend some time there and reflect on uh, uh, youth movements in Cuba? Great. You're going to meet a lot of young people in Cuba uh, who are going to be very attracted to these incoming Americans. They're going to want to party with you and dance with you. They're going to want to do hip-hop with you. They can't wait to meet you. They're going to go to the beach with you. They're going to think it's a lot of fun to pick you up and throw you in the ocean. And you're going to have a great time. Uh, when it gets around to issues, uh, I, I think they're following Black Lives Matter. Um, they'd probably be very interested in environmental issues because that, that island is the, the target of global warming. And uh, what are you doing in co coastal communities? What are you doing in Chesa Chesapeake Bay? What can be 
done to stop the rising tide from climate change. They're um, interested in hip hop. They're, they're interested in cultural exchange. Um, they want more freedom to say whatever they want, hang out with whoever they want, vote for whoever they want. Um, I think you'll have a great time. One of the um, things, of course, to do is to r realize that you're there to listen to them um, and exchange with them and practice being egalitarian and respectful because we all carry unconscious reflexes of superiority. We, no, we think we're from better universities in a better country and we know more. Uh, and they really don't need a, um, a Peace Corps. Um, they did uh, wipe out massive literacy overnight with a, a famous uh, brigade mobilization but I don't think they're in the state of permanent revolution anymore. They wear Che Guevara t-shirts, but they're not like looking forward to helping you, uh, you know, by entering Florida and beginning to overthrow the United States government. They're, they're done with that. They, they, they're, they're 15 years old, 18 years old. It's the time of their grandfathers. Uh, so... Um, if there's anything else I can help you with, I, I think um, uh, there. Th do you have any yeah, advice? Yeah, I, I would. I, I, I throw a couple things to you, and, I, and I, after this is over, I can give you some. We can talk, but I, I'd introduce you to Esteban Morales, who is uh, one of the leading Afro-Cuban thinkers, and uh, in man in his late seventies, maybe eighties. I'm not even sure how old Esteban is. He wrote the book Race in Cuba. He's really knowledgeable, and he has incredible stories to tell. And, and introducing those kids from this city to young people in Alamar, which is a housing project, which is where all the hip-hop stuff is coming out of in Havana, because like, since you're going to Havana, and, 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 and then exploring that, because Cuba was a place, is a place... It's interesting. I'll say this one quick thing. Esteban said to me, the difference between the black experience in Cuba and the black experience in America is that black Cubans never experience the terror that black Americans have experienced. We didn't have lynchings. We didn't have mass executions. People didn't go after us, but we were still at the bottom. And they really dealt with institutionalized racism in ways we have never even begun to do in this country. You can explore that with your kids there. The racism still exists. So, I mean, it's, 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 you can, there's a lot to explore there in Havana, the young hip-hop artists and more. So when, when, we, when this is done, we'll, I'll introduce you to some folks there that will be great for the kids here to, to meet. Another um, uh, question you'll have is, um, they have an interesting race problem, and you'll be bringing your racial consciousness to uh, the island, and you need to put that aside. The, yeah. uh, during the uh, revolution, it was led by um, uh, white-skinned, light-skinned uh, leadership of the party and the army, um, and Cuba is racially stratified. Um, when, when Fidel welcomed Stokely Carmichael there uh, and sent him around the world to promote revolution, um, Stokely eventually came to the uh, conclusion that, that there was something not right about Cuba because they didn't themselves have a consciousness of race. And the reason for that was if you advocated black power in Cuba in 1967, 
you were seen as possibly disturbing the unity of the country against the United States. Uh, maybe you were being, you were being uh, put up to it by CIA influences. There was no role for black power because racism was going to be overcome in the natural course of a socialist unfolding. Uh, so it was put off. Um, and um, even today it's, a, it's complicated, but there's finally a, a realization that there is a, a race problem as a consequence of the structure of the country and that it has to be addressed. Um, and now there's no longer a, um, a United States to worry about. In fact, uh, uh, it'll be very interesting when the uh, African-American president of the United States and family come to Cuba on vacation, what the Cuban reaction will be, because here comes Uncle Sam, but Uncle Sam is black. And they don't have that kind of black leadership in the country. And I think Obama will exploit that without even having to say a word uh, because four million people will turn out and, and you can believe who's going to be in the front row. But what you do about it, uh, since we haven't solved our racial uh, antagonism, is not exactly up to us. Uh, but we, you should recognize it when you go, and you'll probably get a lot of questions. How do you work on it? What do you think about it? How important is it? And that, that, that exchange is going to be very, very, very good for you coming back and for them with what you leave behind. They're gonna, you're going to have an impression on them. So we'll have one more question because we have to get to signing books uh, before Tom has to get to the airport. Go ahead. First of all, thank you, Mr. Hayden, for taking the time to discuss your book with us today. Thank you. Um, my initial question was related to the issue of race, but it looks like we, we touched on that with Morales' writings, and I would highly recommend that book of essays. I just read it recently, and I think How, it, it... Are um, you a student of Cuba, or...? I'm not. I, my name is Hans. I've spent the last three years in Haiti, and during that time, I had the opportunity to travel to Cuba uh, as recently as last year. Nice. So my question... Uh, my, my second question was related to what lesson um, does Haiti or other Caribbean nations with... Um, uh, a diverse racial composition. What do they have to learn from from Cuba, not only um, in regards to the race issue, but also in regards to health, education, and other advances that that Cuba has has shown to the region? What would Haiti have to learn from that? The the solidarity that's demonstrated by the people there. What what kind of lessons and policies could other nations in in the Caribbean uh, take from Haiti? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I'd be um, uh, foolish to, um, to, to judge. Um, Cuba has had long relationships with people in Haiti and other Caribbean countries, of course. Each country is different. Some have more misfortune. Some have more success. Um, the, um, as far as I can tell... Um, Haiti has just taken such punishment since the first uh, uprising, which of course was the first slave uprising against the slave republics, um, and they've just paid for it. Um, um, why the United States colluded in the um, 
removal of Aristide from power. Um, I know something about gangs. I spent 10 years working in L.A. on the gang issues. And Aristide, the priest who was elected, was accused of working with gangs. Well, everybody on the streets in Haiti is in a gang, as far as I can tell, because there aren't many options. So who would you work with? The question is, uh, it's like, uh, you know, Baltimore or L.A. Do you say, oh, no, uh, we don't want to be near the Crips or Bloods when they might have something to contribute to the solution of a specific problem? But we threw them out. We sent him to exile in South Africa, said he was lucky we didn't shoot him. Uh, never let him come back and run for office. Let him come back. But he's banned from being the president of a country, that, another country. Uh, what, what do we have to do? What? What's it about? So you, it's very toxic to keep denying people the chance for representation, saying that if they represent, they'll be violent, they'll cover up for the drug trade or whatever else we've done anyway for a hundred years in Haiti. So I would start with uh, the return of Aristide uh, as a rethinking of how failed our democracy. He was removed on the grounds that our democracy programs required that he, an elected leader, be replaced by someone else uh, and and that's that message of our brand of democracy towards them is so toxic they don't want anything to do with it if it means overthrowing their elected leader the second thing to go back to the gentleman's point about uh, jobs uh, <clears throat> I think we have to take on much more seriously this problem of our neoliberal foreign policy, NAFTA, CAFTA, all these uh, uh, programs that eliminate jobs from ghettos and barrios here, relocate them. It's been an absolute disaster. It has a grip on both political parties, unfortunately. We've got to get Hillary to abandon that through Bernie and, and others, maybe your um, leader in Maryland, maybe not. but. But the uh, I think so. <laughs> well, I hope he has better things to do with his time at the moment. But the uh, people have given up. Uh, they've given up on the idea that um, jobs make a difference. There's this ideological attack on anything government does being bad, and that ideological worship of the idea that if there are going to be jobs in Baltimore. It's, it's going to be because of the exalted private sector and the banks. And if they don't perform, it means the people are at fault. They, they haven't trained themselves be, properly and dressed properly for the job interviews. Uh, and so it's just a failure. Forget about it. This is a nightmare. The whole country is letting the urban areas go down the drain because of this overwhelming power of, I don't think it's just the corporate money, I think it's the corporate thinking, the inability of corporations to remember that it was government that gave them their birthright, that it was government that saved them in the depression in the 1930s, 
and that they have adjusted before to government policies up through the uh, choice of uh, gay and lesbian CEOs, and it will always be government as part of the equation. And, and we have to tackle the tax issue as part of the platform because having been elected and defeated over and over for 18 years, I got to know the white middle class really, really well. And, and here's what they think secretly, whether it's in L.A. or Michigan, where I'm from. Uh, they think that their tax money is going to blacks in Detroit or Latinos somewhere else and it hasn't been spent properly. It's been used for corruption and the same old problems with the schools and the inner city remain, so why should they part with more of their tax money? Um, this is uh, enough to swing a 50-50 election by one point or two. Uh, so I think um, uh, in, in campaigning, merely saying that we need to tax the rich and spend the money on another uh, direction is not enough to overcome the, the incipient suspicion of the middle class that none of their tax money has ever been spent for anything that works. They're, they're almost at that point of, like, don't do this to us. Um, Jerry Brown had an interesting way to break out of it because we started Prop 13, thank you very much, and d destroyed the funding of the schools and community colleges since 1979 in California on the theory that the less taxes, more people would have to spend and they would be retaxed and the money would come, come back to the community colleges. Instead, everything got shut down, cut back, slashed, disaster. Uh, we're like fifth in per capita spending on education and it's, it's been that way. But what the governor did, and you may not like our governor, uh, I think he's the smartest politician in America, even if you don't like all his policies, is he, he came out against taxes from the get-go. He is the stingiest guy in American politics. He's got a background as a, a you know, a, 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 in the sacred order of San Ignatius, and, and he really believes in voluntary poverty and, and hitting your back. And you know, the guy won't the guy won't let a lobbyist buy him a hamburger. He's he's established in the voter mind that he is not going to waste your money. In fact, he's going to strangle uh, the public <laughs> sector, if necessary, to prevent it. So when he ran for his second term this time, the country had changed. The, the communities of color, Latinos in particular, had become much more powerful in California. Uh, and he knew he couldn't run on a program of doing nothing about the collapse of education and higher education. So he proposed a tax increase on the rich. And the left, God bless them, especially the, the millionaire left, they said it wasn't a big enough tax increase. He loved that because that would mean that he'd be in the middle and couldn't be accused of making the highest proposal. And their tax increase would have gone right down the drain and we would have been in catastrophe land again. Uh, the, uh, the right said any tax increase is out of the question. 
which put them out of the discussion because it meant they really had nothing to say because they were against everything. But what about the swing voter? He said the tax increase will only last uh, seven years based on the Bible. <laughs> and, it will, and it will be up for renewal. It will be up for renewal, uh, by the way, after he's out of office, if the money has been spent well. But the money that is generated by the tax increase on the rich will be spent to prevent any tuition increase further at the University of California, and it will go to um, our, our starving school system. And he even put in, because he's got the Latino caucus backing him and the black caucus, he even put in a device in the formula for K-12 that I thought was impossible with the middle class. A disproportionate amount of the money allocated for K-12 will go to schools with the greatest need. I thought, uh-oh, what an idea. How does he dare do that? Because the middle class parents would erupt and say, you're going to take money from our white middle class schools and give it to them. But in fact, the middle class had broadened so much that it was hard to mobilize any kind of white taxpayer revolt uh, because uh, most of the middle class was a mix racially and socially, um, and they were fine with the uh, idea of a redistribution of existing money to schools that are in need, that have the highest dropout rates, the highest poverty rates. So on balance, it's the most progressive policy that he could have achieved, and he did it with um, no voter backlash, uh, and it, it's got to be carried out, but um, uh, it's, it's, it, it, finessing this stuff in a society like ours is very difficult, and I think we underestimate how hard it is to find a master politician who can put together this kind of formula. I think de Blasio is in that category, but he's a newcomer, just learning. He got, his, he got hammered by... The, the, the master of Albany. Um, the, uh, Elizabeth Warren is not a master. She's a master at advocacy and getting elected to the Senate. But the real mastery is, can you be a governor or a mayor or a president? And there's very few that can figure out, since we're so totally divided, how can we move forward at all with you know, uh, a progressive agenda? So I would say, let Aristide run for office. Do not send <laughs> DEA agents to Haiti. Uh, do not tell them that we're coming in with Sean Penn and a package of salvation <laughs> and create a jobs program that is carefully constructed and monitored, period. There we have it. <laughs> Thank you, Tom Hayden. Listen, Yankee.